chapter 12, back into the book of Acts after a short prophecy update. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles, and you flag them, and they'll put a Bible in your hand. It'll be marked to our passage here this morning. And then, of course, if you don't own a Bible, we want everyone to own a Bible and to know their Bible. Make that Bible a gift from the Lord uh, to you today. We pick things up in Acts chapter 12, verse 1. Now, about that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church, Christians there in Jerusalem. And when he had killed James, the brother of John, with a sword, then he killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And and because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. Now, it was during the days of unleavened bread. Verse 11. And when Peter had come to himself, he said, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me from the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the Jewish people. Let's pray together. Father, we are so thankful that your Bible exists in the whole world. There's nothing like it. There's nothing that... um, pours forth in the way that it does with life, with hope, with meaning, with answers to our questions, Lord, and, and um, not only the answers, but you raise the questions that, that you answer and questions and answers that only our Creator could know. And so we thank you for this morning here and as we stand before you in this room for another opportunity to just turn our hearts and our minds, our spirit over to you now and ask that you would speak to us through your word by your Holy Spirit. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I want to begin this morning by just doing kind of a brief stroll through the passage itself and then put our focus on one single point from the passage uh, this morning. Now, we're told in verse 1 that at about, now about that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church, and then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. James is an apostle. He is the brother of uh, the apostle John. John is the author, human author of the book of gospel according to John and his three epistles. And so they were together the sons of thunder, uh, James and John, and, uh, and both of them apostles. Herod is described here as the one who ordered the death of James, and what we have here is the first martyrdom of an uh, apostle in the book of Acts. Stephen was the first martyr earlier in the book of Acts. This is now the death of the first apostle and the execution of James. When you read the Bible, sometimes it's hard to keep track of all of the Herods. There just seem to be so many. They weren't all the same people, but the grandson and then the son and the great and the father and the grandfather and so forth, they were all Herods. And this Herod that ordered the death of James, he is the grandson of Herod the Great, who ordered the uh, massacre of all of the babies in the city of Bethlehem at the time of Jesus' birth. Uh, This uh, Herod's uh, 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 uncle was Herod Antipas, who ordered the beheading of John the Baptist. So the Herods are just scoundrels. They're just awful, awful human beings, an awful dynasty. None of them were good. 
and, uh, but they ruled the southern portion of Israel and the, a region of Israel that included Jerusalem, known as Judea, and they did so with the authority of the Roman, uh, Roman Empire and Roman government. So he orders James, the brother of John, to be killed with a sword. And because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also for the same purpose. Herod had a problem in ruling in Judea because Judea was made up of Jews. And Herod was, the whole string of Herods, they were Idumeans. Uh, we might recognize that more, you know, more recognizable term is they were Edomites. And the Jews did not like the fact that they were ruled over by an Edomite. So the Herods were always trying to find a way to placate and appease the Jews in order to make their reign a little bit easier. So when Herod kills James, one of the apostles, his polling goes up among the Jews, the citizenry of Jerusalem. There's always something wrong about a population that gets excited about a Christian for the death of a Christian for simply being a Christian. But they did, and he recognized, well, if this gives me a blip in my popularity among the Jews, then the death of a second apostle can only mean more of the same. So he arrests Peter with the intent of beheading him as well. It was at the time, we're told in verse 3, of the days of unleavened bread. And the days of unleavened bread were a Jewish feast in those days and today. It was the seven days that followed their Jewish feast of Passover. Passover, the feast of Passover, is one day. Immediately following the seven days that follow that is the feast of unleavened bread. Together they represent a period of time of eight days. Peter is arrested uh, probably prior to the feast of Pente uh, the feast of Passover, rather, uh, and held during the entire eight days because in prison because the Jews did not allow trials or executions according to their tradition uh, during the feasts. So Peter is arrested. He's now being held, and so when he had been. Uh, Herod had arrested him, verse 4. He put him in prison, delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people for death after Passover. When it talks about uh, James being killed in verse 2 with a sword, doesn't mean that he was stabbed. It means that he was beheaded by Herod. That was a means of execution in those days. He intends to do the same thing uh, to uh, Peter as soon as this eight-day period uh, is uh, over. The number of soldiers that are guarding him, it's 16 soldiers, four groups of four, that would um, guard his cell for three-hour periods at a time, and then another crew would come in, and another crew would come in. And so these uh, four, four different groups of four, uh, they, would, uh, they would each have a term of, of three hours in the night, three hours in the day in terms of guarding uh, Peter and guarding him in that cell. And they limited their period of, of duty in this regard in order to keep them fresh and alert for what they were doing. Now, when you had a notorious criminal, 
you would put him in a prison and simply put two Roman guards outside of the prison door. It would be simple enough to take care of things in general. If you had an extraordinarily notorious criminal, uh, you would put a Roman prisoner then inside of the cell and chain yourself to the prisoner with one arm. Here they've got two soldiers outside of the door of the cell, and they've got two Roman soldiers inside, and each of them are shackled to Peter, uh, one to each of his arms. You say, why? A little bit of overkill. Now, Peter had a reputation from earlier in the book of Acts, you remember, when uh, the Jewish religious leaders had imprisoned him and thought he was securely within the prison, and the next thing they knew is that God had delivered him and he was back out preaching on the streets of Jerusalem again. So he's got a reputation for getting out of prison and Herod is determined not to have uh, that embarrassment occur again. Peter was kept there in the prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. The church in Jerusalem realized, okay, Herod isn't just arresting the apostles now. He's arresting them with the idea of killing them. And he's already killed James, and it looks like he's going to kill Peter. And the situation that Peter is in the middle of right now, there is no human hope for him to be delivered. Only God can do it. And so they resort to the only one who could do that, to God, uh, through prayer. And when Herod was about to bring him out, he waits all the way to the final, that, eight, the, the, that night, the, the, the night of the eighth day, I mean, God doesn't spring Peter on the third day or the second day. He waits all the way to the last moment, and Herod's about to bring him out the very next day to execute him, and that night Peter was sleeping, bound with two chains between the two soldiers, and the guards before the door were keeping the prison. And so as he's in, uh, in this place, we're told that Peter was sound asleep. Now, this is tremendous. The night before your execution, he knows, you know, I mean, like three nights earlier, okay, it might not be tonight, it might be, you know, two nights from now. Or now he knows he's going to die uh, the, the next day. And sometimes God waits till the last moment to deliver us. And all, he, all that matters is he knows he's going to deliver us. But sometimes we're in a super panic when it's like, okay, God's only got like 12 hours left. That's a lot of time for God. It's not a lot of time for me, but it's a lot of time for God. And so he's sound asleep. He's not losing any sleep over this at all. So whatever kind of herbal thing he's taking, you know, you get a little bit older and like the first chirp at three in the morning from a bird, you know, and you're up and, you know, ready to grab the first cup of coffee or tea. But he's sound asleep. And we look at it and say, well, he must be a very sound sleeper. I think there's a little bit more to explanation for his peace. You remember when Jesus... Uh, recommissioned him back into ministry following his, uh, his three denials of, of Jesus. He told Peter that one day uh, you, you are going to be taken by hands forcefully and you're going to be crucified. They're going to take you where you don't want to go and you'll be crucified. And Jesus gave the added caveat. He said, when you are old, this will happen. 
And I'm inclined to believe that Peter was holding on to that promise from Jesus. He is not yet an old man, so he has deplorable circumstances that he's in the middle of, but he has a promise from Jesus on this side over here, and he knows somehow something's going to have to happen here because Jesus said, I will be martyred, but I will not be martyred till I'm an old man. I think it's the peace of claiming a promise of God that he he's experiencing here. And then behold, in the middle of the night, an angel of the Lord stood by him. He comes into the cell, and a light shone in the prison. This is the glory of heaven now that's shining in the room. He just dozes on. He just keeps on sleeping. I mean, that's amazing. Nothing can uh, wake him up except an angel striking him. And so the angel struck Peter on the side. This is a no-nonsense angel, and I like him. I just think we're very sissified today in our world and in our culture, and no little whispering, Peter, Peter. He just strikes him in the side. I don't know if it's with his boot or a staff or whatever, strikes Peter on the side and raised him up, helped him to his feet, and said, Arise quickly. And the chains then fell off of his hands, and the angel said to him, Gird yourself, put your clothes on. He's going to help him dress here. And then tie on your sandals. And so Peter did. And then he said, put on your garment, your outer garment. Now follow me. And so he went out and he followed him and did not know uh, that what was done by the angel was real, but he thought he was seeing a vision. So, you know, you're woke up in the middle of the night like this. Okay, is this a dream? Is this a vision? Is this real life? That kind of thing is freaky, you know, and he's in that place right now. And when they were past the first and the second guard posts, they came to the iron gate, which was the final kind of barrier to the city that leads to the city, and then it opened up on its own accord. So just like you go to the grocery store today and the doors open up and all, this happened 2,000 years ago and the opening up of those gates, and they went out and went down the street, and immediately the angel departed from him. No hug. No, hey, bro, God bless you. Hope everything goes well for you, anything like this. Just a no-nonsense guy. He just did his business, and he got out of here. I mean, these people are not appreciated, and, uh, and I appreciate the strong, quiet types, you know. And uh, this is the kind of angel that was, was sent. And when Peter had come to himself, he said, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent the, his angel and has delivered me from the hand of Herod and from all of the expectation of the Jewish people from my death. And so when he had considered this, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. So they had an all-night prayer meeting here for Peter. Peter knew about it, knew where to go, and headed over there to tell them the good news. And as Peter knocked on the door of the gate of the house, a woman named Rhoda uh, came to answer. She recognized Peter's voice, and then because of her gladness, She forgot to open up the gate and let him in, but she ran instead inside of the house and announced that Peter was outside before the gate. And they said to her, you're beside yourself, which is a very kind way of saying, uh, you're crazy. Yes, thank you. So, you're nuts, you're crazy here. Yet she kept insisting that it was so, and so they're willing to yield, okay, something's out there. They said, it is an angel. So they believed in guardian angels, and so it must be his guardian angel there. Now, the thing that's fascinating to me here is 
is this whole mystery. This doesn't solve any mystery concerning prayer at all. Um, God calls us to pray. They were praying. Clearly, their prayers were not the highest kind of prayers because here the answer to their prayer is right out in front, in their front yard on the other side of a gate, and they don't believe that God uh, has answered the prayer. And yet, despite the weakness of their faith behind the prayer, and there's so much faith is important related to prayer, but here God takes what they do offer to him, he adds his grace to it, and he answers their prayer. And that's a tremendous encouragement to me in prayer. I don't think I'm ever going to figure prayer out, uh, you know, scientifically this side of heaven. I just know we're supposed to do it. And a lot of times I feel like that father who came to Jesus and said, Lord, I believe, help me in my unbelief. And to know that the Lord, he honors prayer. He honored this prayer, their prayers, and delivered Peter here. And so uh, here uh, in verse 16, Peter's outside continuing to knock on the door, and uh, it's a humorous scene to us, but remember, he's just been involved in a jailbreak. And in his mind, it's like they're going to find out any second that I'm gone, they're going to start sending Roman guards here, and I got them engaged in a debate, Christians, oy vey, in a debate in there over I'm really out here or whatever, and so, but his life is in danger, and, and that's the anxiety that he's kind of feeling there. And they opened up the door. They saw him. They were astonished again. <laughs> Answer the prayer right there. God is so gracious to me and to them. But motioning to them with his hand to keep silent, he declared to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison, told him the story. And he said, go tell these things to James and to the brethren. And this James that he's talking about is the half-brother of Jesus. And uh, go tell them what's happened. I've been delivered. He departed and he went to another place. And as soon as it was day, there was no small stir uh, among the soldiers about what had become of Peter. And so they didn't understand how in the world did he get out with a guard like this. But when Herod had searched for him and not found him, he then examined the guards. It had all of the earmarks of being an inside job. There was really, humanly speaking, no other explanation for it. So the idea of examining them is examining them with torture to uh, elicit a, a confession, and then having no confession, he commanded that they would be put to death. And so it was a capital crime. Uh, if you ever, as a, as a guard, if you lost a, uh, a, a prisoner who was sentenced to death, then their sentence went to you, and you would be executed. And so these uh, Roman soldiers were. And then Herod went down to Judea, uh, from Judea, then up to uh, Caesarea, and he stayed there. Now, Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon to the north of him, but they wanted to, you know, mend the relationship. And so they came to him, uh, you know, and, and created a liaison uh, uh, through a man by the name of Blastus, who was the king's personal aide and also their friend. And so through Blastus, they approached the king for kind of the conditions of peace and reconciliation. And they did so for the simple reason that uh, the country of Herod, uh, Judea, supplied their country with food. And so a day was set then. Uh, on a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, Josephus tells us he was wearing an outer garment that was made of uh, uh, threads of silver. So when the light hit it, it was like a god, you know, that was there making this oration in, in this sight. So here he is. 
He's in this place, and he's arrayed in royal apparel. He sat on his throne, and he begins his oration, and the people respond fawningly. The voice of a God and not of a man. The voice of a God and not of a man. The voice of a God and not of a man. Ascribing uh, worship to him and to him as a man, worship that only belongs uh, to God. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God, and he was eaten by worms and died. Now, that's a flip. Most people die and are eaten by worms, which seems to be to be the more preferable uh, <laughs> progression. He was eaten by worms and then died. But then in contrast to all of the work of Herod here and the opposition of God in his work, the Word of God grew and it multiplied and so moved forward in a, in a beautiful and, and powerful uh, way. And there was no way that Herod could, you know, bring a stop to all of that. This morning what I want to do is I want to just fill our remaining time with a, with a simple application. In reading this passage, uh, to me, every time I read it, there's one question that fairly uh, leaps off of the page to me every time I do, and it's this. How is it that James dies and Peter lives? How is it that James dies and Peter lives? And following that question very closely, in my mind at least, is the observation that doesn't seem fair to me, that doesn't seem right. If they both lived, okay. If they both died, okay. But one living and one dying, when they both serve the same God and are involved in the same calling of God upon their lives, that confuses me. That smites my sense of fairness. It smites my sense of justice. And this passage, as I said, does that. It smites our sense of fairness and justice, and it can even cause us to question the wisdom of God. I look at all that was invested in James's life as an apostle. There's only 12 of them in all of human history that were walked along with Jesus in the three and a half years of his public ministry. He saw every miracle with his own eyes. I read about him. He saw him with his own eyes. He heard every teaching that Jesus ever taught. And he was not only a part of the apostles, but he was a part of the inner circle among the apostles. He was that inner circle of Peter, James, and John who were present with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration when the other nine were not, present with Jesus as he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night before his crucifixion in a way that the others had not. So much had been invested in his life so much potential for his life, so much revelation given to him. And then here we are, this 
nobody, this comparative nothing known as Herod. Yes, kings in the ancient world, but despicable people. And someone like this gets to take out away the life from James. And when you see something like that, it not only smites my fairness, sense of fairness, and it not only smites my sense of right and wrong and justice, but it also can cause us to question the wisdom of God. How in the world does God allow that much that had been invested in that man to be smitten by this comparative nothing called uh, Herod? And it seems so unfair, and it seems like such a waste. Now, all of this kind of thing and the emotion of it and the circumstances of it, it's not something that's unique to the Apostle James. For I think that ultimately, sooner or later in every Christian's life, there is so much that will happen within our life that seems unfair as we experience it. And when it happens to us, we can't make any sense out of it. And like with James, the seeming premature death of a loved one and how that can send us spinning and even violate our sense of justice and rightness. Maybe it happens when we ourselves or someone we know and love is smitten with cancer or with some other terminal disease. Sometimes it can happen when there's a job loss or a bankruptcy, and here's a person completely out of their control, that there's an economic downturn and their entire industry is gone, and everything they've worked their whole life for is gone in a moment. And it smites our sense of fairness, our sense of, of justice, our sense of right. Sometimes a loss can occur in life through an earthquake or a fire or a drought. And sometimes this kind of emotion, this kind of deep trial, I'm not talking about the Christian who one day we stub our toe making our way across the, Christ, the, the kitchen. I'm talking about those kind of things where something hits our life as a Christian and it disorients us. It disorients us. And most of us will face it sooner or later. Another example of this kind of thing is an unwanted divorce in a person's life. Or if we become a victim of some crime or of some persecution and so forth. And I don't know how to lift the sense of confusion that can accompany many of life's events because only the Holy Spirit can do that in His way and in His time. But I would like to share this morning a handful of things that I think can be helpful in processing events in life in a spiritually safe way, in a spiritually healthy way, when these kind of bombs go off in our lives. And I think that what I'd like to share this morning, or kind of in my mind, I just think about, you know, you go to the bowling alley 
and they uh, put those bumpers along uh, the gutters so that you can't gutter ball it. They'll do that for kids when they come to the bowling alley the first time or they're younger or whatever kind of a deal. And I want to just share a few things here this morning that I think that, that uh, can keep us from kind of guttering out at a time like that and, uh, you know, going off to the wayside and finding ourselves in trouble. I think that very often when uh, we get frustrated and uh, I think that, again, let me start again. I, th- I think very, that very often we can get frustrated in the midst of these kind of situations and wish there were some universal one-size-fits-all explanation from God in His Word for the difficulties that we find ourselves in the course of life. Just one verse that He gives to us that makes all of it uh, better, some explanation from God that would make everything better, that would completely answer all of the questions in our minds some explanation that he would give us that would meet every emotional need that we have at a time like this, that, but he doesn't give it to us. What he gives us instead of explanations are his promises. He gives us promises, not his explanations. And I think one of the reasons for that is that God, what God calls us to in Christianity, and he's very serious about it, is he calls us to a personal relationship with him. And many of us are forever trying to get our help, to get our explanations, to get our needs met in times like this, independent of the relationship. And if he gave us a satisfactory and universal explanation in his word, for his ways, in our lives, especially during difficult times, I'm convinced that it would adversely affect our relationship with him, at least for many of us, because we would be content then to have a relationship with his explanation as opposed to allowing the trial or the difficulty to do what it really needs to do, and that is to draw us very close to him to then hear what he has to say to us and that he alone can speak to us in the uniqueness of who we are and in the uniqueness of the situation that we are in. No explanation from God can do what God alone can do in a personal relationship with him in a circumstance like this that leaves us Uh, disoriented with confusion. Only God can do it. And in his perfect wisdom and love, only he can ultimately explain or not explain himself to us concerning our circumstances, and that's exactly as it's supposed to be. And the best that we can do and the best that someone that I can do is to examine just some things this morning that will keep us safe while all of that is taking place, while we are drawing closer to him to receive from him what he alone can provide us at a time like that. Number one, I think it's important to remember that in the fallenness of this world, 
bad things do happen to good people. And it was true not only of James here, but it was true of virtually all of the apostles. All of the apostles, except for John, would die violent martyr's death for simply being faithful to God's call upon their life, for simply being good and for doing good. Jesus, of course, is the classic example of the fact that bad things happen to good people, isn't he? He's good off the graph, and yet look what happened to him in this world. Jesus taught us, and it's important concerning our expectations of Christianity and of the Christian life in this, this world, Jesus said, these things I've spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace. In the world, not in a formula, in me you might have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Elsewhere in John 15, Jesus spoke to us as his disciples. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. And if you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And remember the word that I spoke to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And if they kept my word, they will keep yours also. And yet many of us are continually surprised and even stumbled every time it happens. Every time we as a good person have a bad thing happen to us and stumbled each and every time that that happens. I don't know about you, but as much as I know that uh, this is an unfair world and that bad things do happen to good people, it always helps me to be reminded of that uh, fact. And, and we need to make sure that our expectations concerning life and concerning the Christian life are biblically based. We were, are not promised that life will be fair, not even for us as Christians. That promise does not exist in the Word of God in this life, or that we will understand everything that happens to us in this life. We don't walk by explanation. We walk by faith. And sometimes we bring these expectations to our Christian life, and then when the, our, our, violation, our expectations, not God's expectations for us, are violated, then it stumbles us, and it stumbles us needlessly. But before we leave this subject of fairness and justice that so often works against a person's faith in God, something happens, that's not fair, that's not just God. And pretty soon we've got a crisis of faith in a person's life where now there's the potential they're going to turn away from God in the midst of the depth of, of that trial. And so this, this whole issue of fairness and justice that so often works against our faith in God, I think it's good to give some consideration to them as actually as a basis for our faith in God. Very famously, C.S. Lewis, he grappled with all of this, and he wrote of it in his classic book, Mere Christianity. And as an atheist, he looked at the world all around him. He looked at all the wrong, all of the unfairness, all of the injustice in the world, and he viewed all of it as proof of the non-existence of God and as an example of the intellectual superiority of atheism as a worldview. And he was content to live for a number of years in that condition. And then one day he stopped 
and he questioned himself concerning the origin and the existence of his innate sense of justice and injustice. And in his words he wrote, but how had I gotten this idea of just and unjust? In other words, how is it that in a world so completely filled with and dominated by unfairness and injustice that the concept of fairness and injustice exists in man? And it must be that we are comparing the world around us to a standard of justice and a standard of justice that transcends the physical world. That is, our deep-seated sense of fairness and justice does not have a natural origin, but is given to us by someone who is not of the universe, someone who is greater than the universe. That is God. And the point being that our recognition of the unfairness and the injustice of the world, and not only in the world but in our own lives, is not a reason to doubt the existence of God and embrace atheism, for example, but given its divine origin in our lives, it becomes a greater reason to trust God and to draw close to Him with our needs for the answers and the instruction and the comfort that can come only from Him. Now, second in terms of safely navigating a season like this in our lives as Christians, it's important to realize that very often difficult and unfair things happen in our lives completely independent of sin in our lives. There does seem to be something about most of us, I don't say all of us, that when something bad happens to us as a Christian, we believe that it must be because of sin in our life, that God has put us in the doghouse, that, that he's upset with us over some kind of uh, uncommunicated uh, reason, and so we just automatically think that this is what it is, it's sin, and somehow God is against us. And so we begin this whole search for why in me have I caused this thing to happen. And Job's comforters were awful in this regard. Chapter after chapter after chapter with Job, there they are. They're telling Job, nothing, problems like this just don't happen in the average person's life. This kind of thing happens to people who have secret sin in their lives. And over and over and over again, they tell him this thing, this mantra over and over. It's only God's grace that Job was able to withstand and the emotional and and physical condition he was to not succumb to this idea that they had, that difficulty in our lives is an indication of sin or God's uh, displeasure. But they were completely wrong about Job. And, and again, a testimony to God's grace that they didn't win him over to their fallacy. But that kind of idea wasn't just prevalent in Job's day. It was prevalent in the days of Jesus Jesus was walking with the disciples one day, and they walked past a man who was blind, and blind from birth. And the disciples posed a question to Jesus as, as they noticed him, and they said, Rabbi, who sinned, this man 
or his parents that he was born blind. It was the teaching within Judaism in that day that if a child were born deformed, or we call them handicapped or special, or if they were certainly born blind, that it meant that either the child had sinned in the womb or the parents had sinned in some horrible way. Imagine uh, bearing a child with some kind of a birth defect and then uh, being the parent and knowing you're not guilty of that, but that's put on you as the culture. That's how you're looked at for the rest of the time. But this was the view, that good things happen to good people and bad things only happen to bad people. And Jesus answered and said, neither this man nor his parents sin, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. And then Jesus proceeded to heal him. And we really have to resist this temptation to equate our physical circumstances and trials with our spirituality or to view our physical condition as an indication of God's pleasure with us or his displeasure with us. The Apostle Paul had to do that or there would be no Apostle Paul. He wrote in uh, 2 Corinthians about all of the difficulties that he went through in his ministry and labors more abundant and stripes above measure and prisons more frequently and deaths often from the Jews. Five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods, once with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked a day and a night. In the, I've been in the deep and journeys often in perils of waters and perils of robbers and perils of my own countrymen and perils of the Gentiles and perils of the city and perils of the wilderness and perils of the sea and perils among false brethren and weariness and toil and sleeplessness often in hunger and in thirst and fastings often and cold and naked as beside all the other things that come on me, upon me daily, my con- deep concern for the churches. <gasps> There's a lot to say. There's a lot more to live through. And what kept the Apostle Paul safe was he never viewed any of those circumstances as any kind of a testament to his right standing before God or before his righteousness in the eyes of God and the purity of his life. Now, number three, some, these kind of times that can come in our life, these kind of trials, uh, when they come, they, they, such times should never mean, they never mean that our circumstances are out of the control of God or that God has fallen asleep at the wheel in our lives. And sometimes we can feel like that. James's life was not out of control even in his death. His death had been prophesied. Remember James and John, they sent their mother to come to Jesus in the final week of Jesus' life in order to use her to help secure the two most prominent seats in eternity, the seat at the right hand and the left hand of Jesus. And they put, these are the sons of thunder sending mom to try and, you know, to, to go to Fandango and get the tickets for those two seats or whatever. And Jesus knows what's going on, and he doesn't address the mother, but he then speaks to them because he knows they're the ones behind it. And he answered them, and he said, you do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with? And when he talks about the cup that he's about to drink, he's talking about the cup of his suffering, the cross, the, all of the brutal activity of the morning of his crucifixion and the crucifixion itself. You remember in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus was crying out in prayer to the Father the night before the cross, he said, if there be any other way, let this cup 
the suffering pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. And he asked James and he asked John, are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? And then uh, they said to him, we are able. And then Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with. And here is James now fulfilling exactly what God said would come to pass in his life. It's interesting to me that James's death is purposely coupled with Peter's deliverance in the passage. If I was God, I'd put like a big distance between those things. In other words, if James is going to die, I'm going to bury that somewhere in like chapter 8, and then Peter gets to get delivered from uh, the same prison, I'm going to put that somewhere at about chapter 18 and hope that everybody that reads the book will, uh, you know, forget about the death of the one and the deliverance of the other and, and uh, the inconsistency that it, it appears to, to bring forth. But the Holy Spirit doesn't do that. He purposely couples Peter's deliverance with James's death in order to reveal that James did not die because of a lack of power on God's part, but rather to reveal, as G. Campbell Morgan put it, he who could deliver Peter and in his wisdom did so was equally wise when he did not deliver James. Which brings us to our next point, and that is the realization that God numbers our days as Christians and our lives are indestructible until that time. God numbers our days. That's important to know as a child of God. Job declared in his prayer to God, he said, you have decided the length of our lives. You know how many months we will live, and we are not given a minute longer. David in Psalm 139 said much the same thing. He cried out to God, your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed, and in your book they were written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. And our lives are indestructible until that time, until those days have been fulfilled. I think always about the two witnesses of Revelation chapter 11 in this regard. For three and a half years during the tribulation period in the city of Jerusalem, they are going to stand against the Antichrist. They are going to preach and prophesy for God outside the rebuilding of this temple that the Antichrist allows the Jews to rebuild. They will prophesy for God. They will speak for God. They will preach Jesus as the promised Messiah. Violent attempts will be made against their lives in an attempt to destroy them. All of them will be unsuccessful. It's only, we're told, when their ministry was complete, is completed that God, uh, that God has spoken all that he desires to speak through them, that the Antichrist will then be able to kill them. And what is true of them is true of each and every one of us as Christians. God numbers our days, and we are indestructible until those days are completed. Why did James die and Peter live? I don't have the slightest idea, except that James's ministry was over. And Peter's wasn't yet. And so God took James into glory in his love and in his wisdom. And once our ministries are over, it's time to get out of here because he only gives us grace for that block of time. I don't want to be in this world 15 minutes longer than my calling. 
because God has brought me to a place in my relationship with him that I can't make it in this world apart from his grace. I wouldn't want to navigate 15 minutes of this world apart from his grace and his presence. When the ministry is over and it's done, then it's time to get out of here. No sense being around a moment longer, and God is faithful then to take us into the glory of heaven, and it's important to remember that heaven is a wonderful place. It's a place where John writes in the Revelation, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. It'll be perfect peace. I'll never experience a temptation again. I'll never be in a trial again. I'll never have my feelings hurt again. Nobody will be able to hurt me. I'll be free of problems. I'll be free of worry, anxiety, free of violence, free of crime, free of interpersonal problems with people. It'll just be absolute perfection. And why would God keep us here a moment longer beyond the completion of our ministry and deny us what he knows heaven to be? The Apostle Paul, who was given a vision uh, of heaven and declared that what he saw and heard there, he said, was of so magnificent that to even attempt to describe what he heard, much less what he saw, would do all of it in injustice. And so he never did in the course of his ministry. But having seen the glory of heaven and having experienced hardship to the nth degree in this world, he did write to the church at Rome and said, for I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. One other point here, I think it's important in times like this to remember that God's ways are not our ways. But not only are his ways not our ways, his ways are infinitely higher than our ways. That famous passage in Isaiah chapter 55, for my thoughts, God says to us, are not your thoughts, nor your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, it's a pretty good uh, distance, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. And it always does me good to be reminded of that, even though I know it. It always does something good in me to be reminded of the fact that not only are his ways better than my ways, but they are infinitely superior than my ways. I look at a situation, and it's very clear what needs to happen uh, in in a situation. And then when God says no and does something entirely different, then I'm to have the confidence that as good as my plan might be, God's plan is infinitely greater. And, and uh, it, it's just a matter of time to watch it unfold. Someone has put it this way, God, nothing does nor suffers to be done, but what thou wouldest thyself do, couldst thou see the end of all he does as well as he. All right, there'll be a test on that. After this, sir. A wonderful friend of mine, he trans... He put a new modern uh, version to it and translated it this way. God answers all of my prayers the same way I would answer them if I had his wisdom, power, and love. And I think that is just outstanding as we realize how concerned he is for us, 
and, and how active he is for our best. It's a source of great comfort when we find ourselves in these kind of circumstances. Now I close with this by reminding us, any of you that are in the kind of situation and the intensity of what has happened here between Herod and James, and the important reminder that in situations that are confusing of that variety, to remember that vengeance belongs to God, and it does not belong to us. The book of Romans, Paul wrote, Beloved, do not avenge yourself, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him drink. For in so doing, you'll heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And what Herod had done to James was just a despicable, horrible thing. And think of that news as it comes uh, to John, his brother, as it comes to the other apostles and that early church, how easy it would be to become bitter and plan Herod's assassination, be pulled away from God's work in, in seeking to do that. But they didn't do it, and they left vengeance with God, and we have to do the same thing with the confidence that he will repay the, right that, the wrong that was done and that we cannot do a better job than he will do in this regard. And certainly Herod is a picture of that within the passage. Who has a better arsenal to repay in your situation, you or God? I think God does, doesn't he? Who can settle the score better, you or God? I believe God can, can he? God meted out his judgment upon Herod, and he's able to do the same for you today. Leave it with him. He'll have the final say in the situation, whether in this life or in the life to come. There's a lot of mystery to life, and there's a lot of mystery that's involved in a relationship with God, because any time you have the finite us in a relationship with the infinite, that is God, you're going to have mystery, and we have to get used to mystery. Again, I don't know how to lift the sense of confusion that can accompany many of life's events and how unfair and how unjust they might be. Only the Holy Spirit can do that in His way and in His time. But perhaps some of what I've said this morning can be of some help to some of us in processing some unfair event in your life in a spiritually healthy way. Let me close with the reminder that in all of this and all of the processing of it and all of the confusion that we can sometimes find ourselves in the midst of these horrible things that can come even into our lives as a Christian to realize that God has a very, very firm grip upon your life there are some trials that we go through in life, and we look at them, we get to the other side of them, and people say, well, how'd you do it? Oh, I kept a firm grip on God. I'm not putting that down. And then there are the trials that come into our lives where we can't even find his hand, let alone keep a grip on it. And we get to the other side of that trial, and somebody says, how did you do that? 
the only explanation, we say, is God kept an absolutely firm grip on me because I would have never made it otherwise. In the midst of all of the confusion that we can face, the depth of trial and tragedy that we face, God never lets go of his children. Jude wrote and he said, Now unto him, that is God, who is able to keep you from falling or stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of God's glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. You say, what can top that? The words of Jesus. John chapter 10, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them everlasting life, and they shall never perish, and neither shall anyone Snatch them out of my hand. That's the relationship. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Thank you, Father, for this time in your word today. Thank you for the openness of your word. Thank you that as we read the Bible, we don't get the sense that the Holy Spirit is trying to tuck this over here and tuck that over there to try and fool us in some way about who you are and about what the Christian life is in this world. And I pray and we pray for one another and we pray for that handful or 20, Lord, that are in the room today and the whole bottom has fallen out of their entire life. And we ask that you use today to breathe hope and to breathe a confidence concerning the future into their lives. And we pray, Lord, beyond all that we've looked at here this morning, that at those times where we think the greatest source of our peace would be some kind of an explanation from you, that you would instead, Lord, draw them more tightly into your arms and more deeply into their relationship with you and then speak to them, Lord, what you know they need to hear and be to them, Lord, what you alone can be. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.